0: Galatians chapter 3. Galatians chapter 3. It's good to be back in the book of Galatians. I was telling my class this morning that uh, not only do I enjoy preaching through books of the Bible, but it's a lot easier than what we've been doing for the last little while. And, um, of course, the passion here at Grace Baptist Church is the study of God's Word, the understanding of God's Word, the belief in God's Word. The book of Galatians was written by the Apostle Paul by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, to the churches of Galatia. And there was a problem. He had gone and preached the gospel to them. They had received Jesus Christ by faith. They understood that the only way to be saved is through the crucified and resurrected Christ, believing in Him and Him alone for your eternal life. They had come to receive that. After Paul left, some Judaizers, some men had come from Jerusalem, teaching them that they had to add the works of the law. To grace in order to be saved. And so the Apostle Paul has been addressing that. In the first two chapters, he has been giving a, a biographical account, his experience, his experience with the people in Galatia. Now he's going to begin teaching them and addressing the issues, addressing the problems. And what we see here in chapter 3 is he's dealing not with salvation, but he's dealing with service. He's not only dealing with he has already established the fact in chapter 2 that the only way that a person can be saved is by faith. Is that right? Um, all right. When we get into chapter 3, what we're learning is that not only are we saved by grace, not only are we saved by faith, but we serve the Lord by faith. How many of you have ever struggled serving the Lord? Sometimes it gets hard. Someone said that um, Christianity has been tried and found wanting. And the person answered and said, no, Christianity has been found hard and so left untried. It's easy to come to the Lord in faith, isn't it? When you set aside yourself, it's easy to come to Him in faith. You just rest. Serving the Lord and living in this world can be hard. How are we supposed to do that? By faith. And so here we are. We're in chapter 3 now. And I want you to notice something. Look at verse 2. This only would I learn of you. Received ye the Spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith? It's a rhetorical question, isn't it? Then look at what it says in verse 5. You have the word at the end of the verse. verse, You have faith. Verse 7, faith. Verse 8, faith. Verse 9, faith and faithful. Verse 11, faith. Verse 12, faith. We could keep on going. The word faith is used 15 times in one chapter. What do you think the emphasis of this chapter is? Faith. Faith And the problem is, how many of you just real simple. how many of you know that you're supposed to live a Christian life by faith? How many of you know that? Then why don't we do it? Now, if you're like me, I, you know, I'm like this. If, if my day is 10 steps, it's like this: Faith. Faith. How many of you would kind of agree that's, that's where you are, And it's supposed to be faith. Faith, 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 faith. Every step of our Christian experience is supposed to be by faith. There we go. Faith is the only way that we can live the Christian life. Now, we understand that, don't we? People in Galatia didn't. They had a problem with it. And so look at verse 1. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 1. Now, this is a good start to a letter, isn't it? O oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? Are y'all looking for Elizabeth Montgomery? <laughs> o oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth crucified among you? Uh, that's that's a pretty harsh statement, isn't it? But he is describing the state of the believers in Galatia. Now, here's the good news. That might not be you. Here's the bad news. It might be you. So let's look at this. Let's try to get an understanding of this text. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ is? hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you. Dear Heavenly Father, thank you so much for your word. Thank you for this church, Lord. this this wonderful group of people that you have called, that, that, that you have gathered together in this place. Lord, we love each other. We love you. So now speak to us through your word. I think that in my own life, you have some correction to be made from this passage. And I would... Imagine, I would, I would believe that others in this room need the correction of the passage. So help us to receive it. In Jesus' name, amen. I want us to look at some things from this text. The first thing that I want us to see are some realities. There are some, there are some givens. So there, there are some understandings. The first understanding is this. The Apostle Paul is writing, assuming that the people want to know the truth. That's an assumption. And when a preacher stands who believes the word of God, when a man like myself stands before a group of people like this, my assumption is that you want to know what the word of God says. That's the assumption that we have. The assumption is that we want to be right with God. Now, your assumption of me is that I am going to accurately communicate the word of God. That's what you have assumed. That's why you are here. And that's what we're going to attempt to do today. But I can tell you this, that when you come to a passage like this, it's very easy to apply your own agenda to it. And that is one of the difficult things as a pastor. The difficult thing is to simply communicate the text without making it say something that God did not intend. I know that's a double negative, but I'm not supposed to impose anything on the text. Is that right? So my assumption is that you want to know the truth. The writer of the Bible, the Holy Spirit of God, through the person of the Apostle Paul, assumes that these people want to be right. How many of you have ever given advice to someone who obviously didn't want it? You know what the Bible says about that? That's foolish. It's foolish to give the truth to someone that does not want to receive it. You're wasting your words. Now, that implies something. Was God foolish in giving us this text? No. That means we need it. I mean, so so the first reality is this. The first reality is this. In this 21st century, Galatians 3 is vital. It is so important, and as we go through this text, I think that you're going to see that. Another reality Another reality. And this is, this is the first. The first reality is this, plain speech. The, the reality of plain speech. Now, we are watching, I don't know about you, but I've watched some of these debates and the interactions with the politicians, and the last thing you get is plain speech. Isn't that right? They use a hundred words when one would work. And they avoid the one. That's, that's the world that we live in. Because plain speech, I'll I'll never forget this. Uh, How many of you remember watching this? You'd watch an interview with Dick Cheney, and he'd say, "I, "I just don't think that that it would be wise for us to sit down with Mahmoud Ahmadinejad at this point when they're trying to develop weapons of mass destruction to destroy one of our allies." And then it would be reported. Dick Cheney went crazy. How many of you remember seen something like that? You watch it and you think, "Wait a minute, i I watched that. That didn't happen. What happened? He identified right and wrong. Now there are plenty of things that Dick Cheney positions that he has that I would completely disagree with. But many times he simply stated a fact in a in a concise way, but to to today's soft-minded uh sensibilities, it was harsh. It was mean. It was cruel. Is that right? But we see some things about plain speech. Because the Apostle Paul, by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, uses plain speech, then we understand something. That plain speech is holy. Because these are the holy scriptures. So plain speech is holy. Plain speech is right. Plain speech is inspired in this context. Plain speech is loving. When you tell someone the truth, that's loving. But speaking the truth in love, one of it, when you go to Ephesians chapter 4, and we're not going to go there this morning, but when you understand that maturity, the Bible says in verse 11, and he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the perfecting of the saints for the work of the ministry. And then the context, what goes on is how does that happen? What is the process? That we are all supposed to come unto the perfect man, Jesus Christ. The, the, the job of the preacher is to bring the believers to maturity. One of the marks of a mature believer is this. They speak the truth in love. So plain speech is biblical. It's holy. It's right. It's inspired. It's loving. Plain speech is helpful. Keep your place here. Go to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 14. 1 Corinthians 14. Look at verse 7. Now this is talking about speaking in tongues and other issues. And he says this, verse 6. Now, brethren, if I come unto you speaking with tongues, what shall I profit you? Except I shall speak to you either by revelation or by knowledge or by prophesying or by doctrine. So the prophet is revelation. That's the word of God. Knowledge. That's knowledge of the word of God. Prophesying. That's applying the word of God. And then doctrine. that That's what's profitable. So look at verse 7. And even things without life giving sound, whether pipe or harp, except they give a distinction in the sounds, how shall it be known what is piped or harped? There's supposed to be distinction. How many of you have ever heard the, uh, unstructured jazz? You know, I don't know the technical name for it. Noise is the technical <laughs> name for it. Now, some people like that, but what that is, what, what that is to art, that kind of jazz is to art what Picasso is to art. Have you ever looked at a a Picasso painting and you're going, what was he on? Right? And it is. It's ugly. Now, sometimes the colors might be pretty, but somebody has to teach you that that's good. Someone said that modern art is the product of the untalented sold by the unscrupulous to the unknowing. Right? And, Pastor, that's just your opinion. No, it's fact. It's fact, because what the world has tried to impose on us is unstructured music, unstructured language, unstructured art, because God has established the rules of beauty and order and structure. Is that right? And so even in language, we're supposed to be very careful. We're supposed to use certain sounds, clear teaching. So look at verse 8. For if the trumpet give an uncertain sound, who shall prepare himself to battle? Imagine if they're supposed to blow charge and they blow lunch. That would be a problem. That's an uncertain sound. How many of you ever gotten directions to put something together at Christmas time and they're in Japanese? That's an uncertain sound. That's not helpful at all. Maybe the pictures are, but the words are not helpful at all because you can't understand them. Look at verse 7. So likewise, ye, except ye utter by the tongue words easy to be understood, how shall it be known what is spoken? For ye shall speak into the air. Now, technically, specifically doctrinally, he's saying, That was helpful, wasn't it? That's what he's talking about. But in a general sense, when we're using words, we have to use words that people understand. If I stand up here and use technical theological terms that from my, from my schooling and my specific discipline, I understand that you don't, that doesn't help you at all. How many of you have ever been to a doctor and he describes to you what's going on and you go, Doctor, I have no idea what you just said. I don't understand at all what you just said. What does he have to do? He has to put it down in language that the common man can get. That's what the Apostle Paul is doing. How many of you think they understood? Oh, foolish Galatians. How many of you think they understood that? That's simple. That's simple. Plain speech. Plain speech is holy, right, inspired, loving, helpful, profitable, and necessary. I'll never forget watching Joel Osteen on uh, Larry King. And he said, so are you saying that these people are, are going to go to hell? Oh, no, are you saying that these people are sinners? I think he was talking about homosexuality. Are you saying, are you saying that these people are sinners? Oh, I don't know that I'd say that, Larry. I, I don't like to use those terms. What terms do you like to use then? Show me the money. Now, I don't know if that's the term he wants to use or not. But it's interesting. The price of the book is clearly understood. Right? There's no problem understanding how much to send in for the book. But to understand whether sodomy is a sin, I I don't know that I'd say that. You see, plain speech is necessary. It's loving. It's kind. It's helpful. Now, can people use words to be hurtful and abusive? Look with me at Ephesians chapter 4. It's amazing how much truth is in Ephesians 4. So we're talking about this. Now we've been talking about maturity in Ephesians 4. Now the text, if you get down to verse 20, it's talking about putting on holiness and righteousness, what we've learned from Christ. Verse 21, If so be that ye have heard him and have been taught by him, as the truth is in Jesus, that you put off concerning the former conversation, the old man, which is corrupt, according to the deceitful lusts, and be renewed in the spirit of of your mind. And that you put on the new man, which after God is created in righteousness and true holiness. When we talk about these big terms, righteousness and true holiness, they're meaningful words, aren't they? But people apply their own meaning to those words. And so the Apostle Paul gets very specific. The Holy Spirit gets very specific about what holiness and righteousness is. Don't lie to people. That's the first thing he says. Look at what it says in verse 25. Wherefore, putting away lying... Speak every man truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. So in a church, don't lie to each other. So what's holiness? Tell the truth. All of a sudden we're from up here. The beauty of holiness, the vicissitudes of language, and don't lie. You see? There's a difference. Now, go down to verse 29. So we're talking about how words can be used Uh, Plain speech is holy, right, inspired, loving, helpful, profitable, necessary. If it's right. Verse 29, let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth. So what is corrupt communication? Immediately, we who have grown up around Christianity think of, of, of swearing, that corrupt communication is swearing. Now, I think that would apply, but that's not what's being spoken of here. The definition of corrupt communication is given here. Look at the rest of the verse. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace unto the hearers. So if your speech is not building people up in the Lord and ministering the grace of God to them, then it's corrupt communication. Right? So what does the grace of God teach us? So if... Corrupt speech is anything that does not edify and communicate grace to the hearers. What then is speech does speech do? What does grace teach us? Go to the book of Titus. Titus. Chapter two and verse eleven. So remember, corrupt communication. Let no corrupt communication proceed out of your mouth, but that which is good to the use of edifying, that it may minister grace to the hearers. So my language is supposed to build people up by communicating grace. What does grace do in our lives? All right. Here is Titus chapter 2, verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us. So grace teaches us something. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts we should live soberly, righteously and godly in this present world. So, here's what plain speech is supposed to do. Plain speech is supposed to edify people. It's a, it's to build them up, ministering grace to them. Grace teaches us, first of all, that the only way you can be saved is by grace. You can't be saved by works. Isn't that right? The grace of God which brings salvation. Grace is a gift, not by works of righteousness which we have done, but by His mercy He saved us. Isn't that right? For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Grace is the gift of eternal life. We receive that as a gift by grace, but that's not the only thing we receive. We also receive the knowledge of righteousness. We also understand that we are to live godly lives and holy lives. Plain speech, godly communication builds people up by teaching them what God has required for their lives. Plain speech is good. We're looking at realities. The first reality is the reality of plain speech. Go back to Galatians chapter 3. Look at verse 1 again. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth, before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth, crucified among you? So the first reality that we see is plain speech. The second reality is the reality of foolishness. My dad would say this, that's enough foolishness. What do you think he meant? I don't know, but it meant stop whatever it was I was doing at that particular moment right and and it wasn't there was no discussion we we're going to stop um or something else would happen foolishness foolishness this was the character of the believers in the Galatian churches would you all agree with that we have to agree with that because that's what god said about them remember this is not the apostle paul this is the holy spirit through the apostle paul the holy spirit said the people in the churches of galatia were foolish. Oh, foolish Galatians. So we've seen the reality of plain speech. Obviously, that's plain speech. Here is the reality that foolishness exists. There is foolishness in the world. Listen to what Webster's 1828 says about foolishness. This is the definition of foolishness. Void of understanding or sound judgment. Void of understanding or sound judgment. Then listen to this. Weak in intellect. And it's applied to the general character. So the general character of the Galatians was they are weak intellectually and they are void of understanding. Unwise, imprudent, acting without judgment or discretion in particular things. Foolish. Foolish. It's like this. Imagine that, um, imagine that Luke here has a jolly rancher. And I want that Jolly Rancher. Hey, Luke, I'll trade you my car for it. He's in. How many of you think that would be a good deal for Luke? How many of you think that would be very foolish for me? Yeah. How about this? How about when Esau sold his birthright for a bowl of chili? Uh, how many of you think that was foolish? How many, is that what's demonstrated in Scripture? That's foolish. Foolishness is a wrong evaluation of priority. Foolishness is an inability to process information and come out with a mature decision. That's, that's foolishness. That's the, that's the state of the people in Galatia. Um, here's what Webster said. In Scripture... It's wicked, sinful, acting without regard to the divine law and glory or to one's own eternal happiness. So you act in a way today that violates your eternal happiness. That's foolish. Would you all agree with that? The fool hath said in his heart, there is no God. That's foolish. So we are looking at some realities. The first reality is the reality of plain speech. The second reality is the reality of foolishness. And the problem is all of us have foolishness in us is that right? What is maturity? Maturity is, through discipline, weeding out the foolishness. That's, that's what maturity is. Then, so foolishness is a reality, but it's also a serious condition because in the context, we're going to see what foolishness has done to these people. Now, how many of you would say, I don't want to be foolish? would say, I do not want to be foolish. I want to be a mature believer. I don't want to be known as a fool, we're not even going to take the time to go there today because we've talked about it in the past. But if you haven't been here, here's what I would challenge you to do. Get a piece of paper and give yourself two columns. Write fool and write wise man. Just like this. Fool and wise man. And start reading through the book of Proverbs. And when you see a characteristic that God identifies for a fool, write it down. Fool, scorner, What's another word that Proverbs uses? Fool and scorner are the primary words. Scoffer. When you look at those words, fool, scorner, scoffer, identify the characteristics of that personality. And then identify what God says about the wise man. And identify those characteristics. And then give yourself a test. Who am I? Who am I? Who am I? The primary definition of a fool in the Book of Proverbs is one who refuses instruction. You can't tell them anything. How many of you school teachers have ever met a fool? <laughs> yeah, it, it, it's interesting. How many of you have ever, ever met someone that you can't tell them anything? They know it all. Did I tell you about that? The guy that put an ad in the newspaper? Set of encyclopedias, brand new for sale. Got married. Wife knows everything. <laughs> it's funny. Um, So these are realities. There's the reality of plain speech. Plain speech is a good thing. How many of you would agree that plain speech scripturally is a good thing? How many of you agree that foolishness exists? How many of you would agree that within you is the potential for foolishness? So that's why this text all of a sudden becomes very powerful to us because I recognize in myself great foolishness, great foolishness. Um, Then here's another reality. Here we are in Galatians chapter 3, verse 1. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth? So here's another reality. Obedience to the truth. Obedience to the truth of the Word of God is something that is required. It's something that's assumed in the Word of God. The instruction of the Word of God, the purpose of it, is so that we can obey it. Is that right? So obedience to the truth. Now, one of the problems that we have in understanding obedience to the truth is we don't model that at home. So some of our children have never seen what obedience is. O- obedience is not, I'll do it when I get around to it. Obedience is, the only acceptable obedience is where they do it immediately in the right spirit. That's obedience. Delayed obedience is disobedience. Is that right? We were, I was talking with some of the men about, you know, imagine if somebody breaks into your house. And you tell your children Get up in your room and lock the door I don't want to Okay, die You understand in that scenario That's the option And you've trained them About getting to their room When you say it's time for bed ah! Okay, you can stay up another three hours. <laughs> and God says to you, bring all the tithes into the storehouse. And you say, ah, 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 I want a boat. I want to go on vacation. Isn't that interesting? obedience you see obedience to the truth is a reality it's a reality but we have a problem we got to understand that obedience is required and in the context disobedience is foolish is that right so what we have to understand is that god is good his way is best And his way is always good for you and for your good. So when God tells you to do something, even if it's hard, it's for your good. Isn't that right? So obedience is good for you, even though it's hard, even though you don't want to, even though it goes against what your plan for the day was. It's good for you. All right. So one last reality. All right. So our realities that we've looked at so far is the reality of plain speech the reality of foolishness, the reality of obedience. And then here's the last reality that I want to discuss. There are more here, but I want to discuss this. Look at what it says in verse 1 again. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ, look at what it says, Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth crucified among you. So here's our fourth reality, the reality of the crucified Christ. How many of you believe that Jesus Christ was crucified for you? That's real. He did it for you. The only reason that any of us get to go to heaven is because of the crucifixion of the Savior. If that didn't happen, we don't get to have eternal life. If that didn't happen, we have no understanding of the truth. If that didn't happen, we, will, we would spend eternity in hell. That's the reality. And the reality here was that it had been evidently set forth among them, the crucifixion of Christ. Paul had described it to them so vividly that they understood it as a reality. According to the book, he had lived the crucified life before them so clearly that they could understand the reality of the crucified Christ. Chapter 2 and verse 20, I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live, yet not I but Christ liveth in me. And the life which I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. That's just a few verses before this. The reality of the crucified Christ was evident in the Apostle Paul standing before them. That's a reality. And that reality ought to be a part of our lives. Are you living the crucified life? Are you demonstrably living the crucified life? In other words, let me put it this way. Do people know you're a Christian? Do people know that you have been crucified with Christ, that you're living a godly life? That's the reality. Okay, so now here, they're, they're, we understand the reality of plain speech, the reality of foolishness. The, rea- the reality here of, of obedience and the reality of the crucifixion. So now what's the problem? Well, there's some reasons for this plain speech. We'll look at the reality. Let's look at some reasons. Oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth crucified among you? So here's the reason. Who hath bewitched you? Bewitched you. How many of you think that's an interesting term in the text? Bewitched. Well, here's what Webster says about that. To fascinate, to gain ascendancy over by charms or incantation. So here's here it is, um, Andy. I'm going to use this right here, the green one. So here's what we have. <laughs> you will not obey God. You will not obey God. You'll you'll play ball instead of going to church. You'll not obey God. you'll, you'll play video games <laughs> instead of going on visitation. It's more fun to play video games than bring people to Jesus. It's more fun to play video games than bring people to Jesus. Your children will not obey. your children will not obey. It's not loving to discipline. It's not loving to discipline. You don't have to you don't have to have a sorcerer to do that. Who has done it? Satan. All that is in the world. Lust of the eyes. Lust of the flesh. Pride of life. All of that is designed to keep you from obeying the truth. It's a lie. It is a lie. What has fascinated you? What has charmed you by fascination? I'll tell you what charms me. I'm driving down the road and a cool car goes by. I'm fascinated by that car. I love cars. I love it. Pretty much I just like anything. I like stuff. I like nice pens. I looked at a pen the other day that was $500. How many of you would say that's foolish? Would you raise your hand? You don't understand. <laughs> Look, those are things, they're, they're shiny. Right? They're nice. I like nice stuff. What is it? What is it that charms you? Security? Retirement? Mom? That wasn't supposed to be funny, guys. What is it? Understand that whatever it is, something had charmed these Galatians away from the crucified life. Something had charmed them away from obedience to the truth of the word of God. They had been charmed. And then what was this bewitching to do? Look at what it says. O foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth crucified among you. So here's what the bewitching did. It kept them from obeying the truth. That's, that's what bewitching does. So the Bible says, To him that knoweth to do good, and doeth it not, to him it is sin. So what would cause us to do that? Fascination, or charming, being bewitched by the world. We're being bewitched by the world. The world tells you you don't have time to serve God. You don't have time for discipleship. You don't have time to have your children in Sunday school. You don't have time for Awana. You don't have time to share your faith. You don't have time for Sunday night. That's family time. The world tells you. The world, the culture tells you. Give God Sunday morning. That's enough. What does he want? Everything? Yeah. Yeah. You see, that's how we have been bewitched. Our life is to be served and to be lived for the Lord. Look at what the Bible says. This is interesting to me. Oh, foolish Galatians. I want you to mark this word. Who? Who? Who, who hath bewitched you? I would ask you, who bewitched you? Who told you that your life will be better if you don't give to the Lord? Who who told you that? Where did you get that in your mind? Who told you, who was it that told you that God's plan for the home is not good for you. Ladies, the husband being the head, the husband loving the wife as Christ loved the church, the children obeying the parents. Who bewitched you that that was a bad idea? Who, who bewitched you that you've come a long way, baby? Some of you are you too young to understand what that's about. Who, who bewitched you away from the truth? Who is it? Someone did it. Uh, How how does that work? Well, who are you listening to? Who are you listening to? Who are your influencers? Do you remember? How many of you made a commitment to the Lord of some kind at, say, a youth camp or a revival meeting or a special church service? And it seemed like your life had changed forever. How many of you have experienced that? And then you got home. And life went back to the same way it was. How many of that you have experienced that? Why? Because at camp, here's what's going on. At camp, you're, you, you were separated from the world. You were only around people who have a stated desire to serve the Lord. You're being instructed by people who spend time in the Word of God every day. You're being instructed by people who have chosen to live their lives for the Lord. And you're around other young people. That are sold out to God. That have given their lives to God. And in that setting. You are encouraged. To give him your life completely. Is that right? And then you go home. And your parents only have you with those people. For one or two hours a week. The rest of the week you're with. Lost. Ungodly worldly-minded people who have no understanding of God or God's plan. Who hath bewitched you? Your neighbor. Your neighbor. Your brother who's not living for the Lord. Your mother. Not you young people. I'm talking about grown-ups. Your mother who doesn't know God. Or if she does, she doesn't have any idea. Doesn't have any idea what the Bible teaches. Living in open rebellion. A father who doesn't have any idea what the Bible teaches. Living in open rebellion to the Word of God. And you allow that person to influence your faith away from faithfulness to the church. Away from living the Christian life by faith. Away from being around God's people. Imagine... What is that? That's bewitching. It's keeping you from obeying the truth. Well, if I do, he'll think I hate him. She'll think I hate her. I I got to do what they say. Really? Turn to Matthew. Matthew chapter 10. Matthew chapter 10. How many of you would say you have foolishness in you? How many of you believe that we should obey the truth? How many of you believe that this culture is bewitching? Matthew chapter 10. Look at verse 35. You know what? Let's go back to verse 32 whosoever, therefore, shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. Isn't that an interesting passage? You ought to mark that. Think not that I am come to send peace on earth. I am come not to send peace, but a sword. I am come to set a man at variance against his father and a daughter against her mother and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it, and he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. You see, Jesus Christ in discipleship, this is Him describing to His disciples the life that He was calling them to, and that is that when you follow Me, if you have family that is not following Me, that will set you at variance to them. How many of you understand that? And yet, to maintain a relationship we will keep from following Jesus Christ because we love our mother, we love our father, we love our brothers and sisters, we love our children more than we love the, Jesus, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, how many of you believe in the reality of plain speech? How many of you believe that whatever God calls us to do is for our good? What did Jesus Christ just say? Now, children, I've got to clear this up. It's not telling you to hate your mom and dad. Aren't you glad? You're supposed, to, you're supposed to obey your mom and dad. Your mom and dad love you. They have you here for a reason. They love you. This is talking about down the road as an adult when you're trying to serve the Lord and your parents say, Oh, don't spank that precious little child. They, what they did isn't that bad. Hey, mom, how about you go in the other room? I got to take care of something. And then you get alone with mom and say, Mom, you keep acting like that, you can't come into this house. You cannot be with my children and behave that way. If you want to be with your grandchildren, you'll honor the Lord and you'll follow the rules of this house. People go, I would never. That's right, because you love your mom more than you love Jesus Christ. In that setting, you love your mom more than you love your children. How many of you would say that that was foolish? That is foolish. The other thing that I think is interesting about that, Jesus knew what your your situation would be. He knew that when you got saved, you'd have family members that didn't want you to serve God, that were walking according to the course of this world, according to the prince, the power of the air, Satan. Why? Because they're locked into this world system. Jesus said, You're not of the world. We have here no continuing city. We're looking for a city whose builder and founder, ruler is God. That's who we are. We're pilgrims. We're passing through. We're going to be obedient to the word of God, even if mom and dad don't like it. Who hath bewitched you? Who are your influencers? You know what's interesting? How many of you have found that it's easier to serve the Lord when you're faithful in church and around believers? How many of you have found it was easier to serve the Lord when you were actively involved in discipleship? If you don't know what our discipleship ministry is, it's this. It's what the Bible describes. Jesus told us to go into the world and make disciples. What is a disciple? A disciple is one who follows Christ with the intent to learn and learns with the intent to obey. Jesus Christ discipled just three guys at a time. Peter, Peter, uh, James, and John. He had his 12 disciples, spent most of his time for three and a half years with three. We believe the Apostle Paul invested his life in the people. We believe in one-on-one biblical discipleship where you are a minister of the Word of God. You're trained to teach someone else the Word of God. You're actively involved in ministering God's Word to another person. That's discipleship. That's what you are called to be, a disciple of Jesus Christ, a follower of Jesus Christ. We want to train you to do that. That's what discipleship is. Those of you who have been in discipleship, you know that your walk with the Lord was better when you were at daily in the word, when you were being held accountable by someone else to be in the word daily. That's the way that it works. Why? As iron sharpens iron, show a man sharpeneth the countenance of his friend. It's biblical. It's biblical. We are influenced by people. Well, how can I influence my lost mom and dad if I'm not with them? Well, who's influencing whom? If you don't come to church because of your mom and dad, who is being influenced? If you can't disciple someone, if you can't take the time to invest your life in another person, if you don't have time to do that, who is being influenced? And who is having the influence? I think we're seeing that we could say, O oh, foolish Ohioans, who hath bewitched you that you should not obey the truth? I think something that's very interesting is this. Missionaries on the field. Now, I've got to tell you, someone that's willing to be trained for the ministry and then spend years going from church to church and town to town raising the funds to go to the field, that's a committed servant of God. Would you agree with that? That's a hard life. Dragging your kids all over the country for two or three years to raise the money to go to a foreign field. That is a surrendered, called-out worker, servant of God. Would you agree with that? But here's the problem. Most missionaries today spend more time on deputation. They spend longer on deputation than they actually stay on the field. Why? They get to the mission field, listen, and they are completely alone. No other believers, no no safety net. No support group. No encouragers. No, they're alone in a world of lost people. That's why we've got to pray for our missionaries. Amen? God hasn't done that to you. You have a New Testament church. The Bible says, "...bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ." You have a place to come and serve. You have a place to be challenged. You have a place to learn. You have a place to be held accountable. You have a place to serve God and invest in others. You have instruction. You have everything. You have a building to do it in. One hour a week? That's all you got for God? You see, you know what our problem is? We got saved by faith but we're living the Christian life like the world. That's why 15 times in this chapter, and we're going to go through it, 15 times in this chapter God talks about faith. It takes faith to believe that if you give to the Lord's work, he'll bless your finances. It takes faith to believe that. It takes faith to believe that if you get plugged in with God's work, that he'll bless your home. It takes faith to believe that, that moms, moms, it's your job to be the keeper at home. To order that home. To have it a peaceful place that glorifies God. That's your job. It takes faith to believe that. And it takes faith to accomplish it. Amen? Dads, it takes faith to believe that it's your responsibility to bring those children up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. It takes faith to believe that. It takes faith that your schedule is under the authority of God. And if you don't have time to read the Bible, if you don't have time to pray, if you don't have time for discipleship, if you don't have time for the Lord's work, if you don't have time to come to church services, you've been bewitched by the world. The world's lied to you. The world doesn't care about your eternity. They don't care. We care. Now let me say this. We're not the only ones that care. Aren't you glad there's great Bible-preaching churches all over the world? Isn't that wonderful? People that love God and love His Word. And you know what those preachers do a couple times a year? They stand up and say, Men, if you love God, if you love your family, schedule your time to serve God in the institution for which He died. Every church, every Bible-preaching church does that. All of them do. Why? Why? God told us to. He he did. Go back to Titus. I want you to see something. Titus is one of the pastoral epistles. This is Paul teaching Titus how to be a pastor. Titus chapter 2 and verse 11. For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts. What are worldly lusts? $500 pens. If I could afford that, I don't... If you have a $500 pen and you're honoring God with your finances, I don't care. God wants you to have nice things. Seriously. Seriously. Somebody else might think that's foolish. You drive a Cadillac or something and you're honoring God with your finances and you're helping your brothers and sisters in Christ and God's blessed you. Praise God. I'm glad you got that car. I'll borrow it next week. <laughs> I often say, I don't want to own a boat. I want to know someone who owns a boat. Look, I'm glad. How many of you, God, has blessed you with stuff? I mean, I've got tools. Laura says, You don't use those tools, you just sell them. Are you crazy? I like my tools. And there are men in here that would spend two or $300 on a drill and somebody else would say, are you crazy? Well, if you're honoring God with your finances and that drill is a benefit to your home and whatever, it's great, I'm glad you've got it. I'm not saying that we should all be monastics. Okay, are you with me? What is worldly lust? It's things of the world that you're not doing for the glory of God. It's something that's in the world that's bewitching you and pulling you away from what God has called you to do. Teaching us that denying ungodliness and worldly lusts, we should live soberly. What's that? Well, not drunk, for one thing. Amen? But it's also aware, alert, righteously, and godly in this present world. Why? Because Jesus is coming back. Looking for that blessed hope and the glorious appearing of the great God and our Savior, Jesus Christ. He's everyone's great God. He's our Savior. Isn't that wonderful? Verse 14. Who gave himself for us that he might redeem us from all iniquity... And purify unto himself a peculiar people, zealous of good works. He died for you to set you apart to serve God. Right? Now look at what he tells Titus to do. Verse 15. These things speak. Plain speech. These things speak and exhort, challenge the people to do it, and rebuke when they don't, with all authority. Let no man despise thee. You see, go back to Galatians chapter Three. verse 1 oh foolish Galatians who hath bewitched you that ye should not obey the truth before whose eyes Jesus Christ hath been evidently set forth crucified among you this only would I learn of you received ye the spirit by the works of the law or by the hearing of faith well that's rhetorical the only way you can get saved is by faith not by works Verse 3, are you so foolish? Having begun in the Spirit, are you now made perfect by the flesh? Do you see that? Can I tell you something? I've talked about giving today. Giving's never saved anybody. I've talked about discipleship. The first step in discipleship is evangelism. You can't be a disciple until you're saved. Right, Reading the Word of God doesn't save anyone. Reading and believing what it says is what saves you. Isn't that right? Being a good dad has never saved anyone. Being a good mom has never saved anyone. Being an obedient child has never saved anyone. We are saved by grace through faith these galatians had been bewitched away from that by people teaching them influencing them you got to do this too you got to do this too you got to do this too <coughs> that's not our problem i don't think there's anybody here that i know of who believes that they have to work to go to heaven so our disobedience of the truth is not there What you need to do, and I would challenge you to do, and this is what I need to do myself, I would challenge you to do this. Get on your face before God and say, Lord, where have I been bewitched? Where have I been fascinated away from serving you by this world? Where has the world charmed me away from you? Let's not be foolish. Let's obey the truth to tie back to the former series that we just finished. Look at the verse 1, Galatians 3, one. Oh, foolish Galatians, who hath bewitched you? This next phrase, that ye should not obey the truth, that's gone from the modern Bibles. How many of you think God wants you to obey the truth? Satan doesn't. Satan doesn't. So here's the deal, folks. Let's go back to where we started. How many of you believe that plain speech... Is necessary. How many of you would agree that foolishness is present in all of us? Do y'all agree with that? Now, don't raise your hand on this. This is between you and the Lord. How many of you would say the Lord's revealed some foolishness in my life? I'm so glad I'm saved by faith, but I've not been living the Christian life by faith. I've not been trusting God with my finances, and I've not been trusting God with my schedule. I've not been trusting God with my attitude. I've not been trusting God with my influencers. I've been foolish. You know what the best thing about this is? Being right is one prayer away. (laughs) Isn't that wonderful? We can be right in these things. God can remove the foolishness from our spirit by the washing of water by the word. He wants to cleanse us. He wants to make us right. He wants to renew our minds. Lord, thank you so much for your word. This is a sobering passage.